Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Independent talk. Talk. News talk. Talk radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham. With the self-appointed revolutionary of reason, Mike Graham. On talk radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here at the home of common sense. It is, of course, Talk Radio. There's a big wide world out there and this is just the place to be if you want to explore it because we're going to be taking a trip around uh, the news agenda this morning, traversing it with our usual dexterity. And we'll be talking about everything from taxing to spending, from China's zero COVID policy to the state of the NHS. Today's story is that nearly 40% of cancers are only diagnosed when patients actually turn up at A&E. And that considering the fact uh, that doctors are being told to stop sending people to A&E uh, because otherwise there will just be simply chaos. Don't go to A&E, they say. Well, you can't go to the doctors. Where are you supposed to go if there's something wrong with you? Supposed to just throw yourself under a bus or something? For heaven's sake, 0344 499 1000. First up, we're talking to Christopher Snowden, Head of Lifestyle Economics at the IEA. I'll be asking him just why we have such an odd relationship with tax in this country. What does the fishy, rishy saga tell us about rich politicians? And shouldn't we be able to see every public servant's tax returns? I'd say why not? Tory MPs are now calling for more transparency from the Cabinet. I think all MPs should be forced to publish their tax affairs. And quite frankly, I would also extend that to various public bodies. Anybody who runs the civil service, anybody uh, who is in the business of telling us how to behave and making us live in a particular way, I think we need to know what they live like, don't we? We'll also be asking why so much of Britain is currently out of order. From airports to shops to restaurants and train services, nothing seems to work terribly well, does it? I'll be asking Christopher, what is the reason for that? Why has Britain suddenly become so crap at everything? 0344 499 1000. Professor Carol Sikora is here as well with his take on why the cancer waiting times and the hopeless conveyor belt nature of healthcare in Britain uh, is causing so many problems for the NHS. Laura Dodsworth is also here with her take on all the big stories of the week, including Rishi Sunak, but she'll also be talking pets during warfare and the current COVID madness all around, even though people say they don't care much about COVID, they're not worried much about COVID, they're more worried about the rising cost of living. 0344 499 1000. Kevin O'Sullivan is here as well with the news that Megan is now going to join Harry at the Invictus Games. Isn't it going to be great? Oh, Harry, Harry. And, you know, the Netherlands is so close to Britain. Isn't it? Isn't it in Europe or something? Will they come here to see the Queen? Apparently not. Too dangerous. Not dangerous in Amsterdam. That's fine there. Everybody's wandering about in a state of stonery. So nobody's going to kill him. Excellent. Well done, Hazza. Uh, also, we'll be talking to Carol Decker from Tapau. She's going to be popping in ahead of her appearance on Plank of the Week. Uh, we don't often get pop stars in the studio, so it'll be quite nice to see her. 0344 499 1000. Finally, we'll be finding out why children's services are actually at breaking point right now. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing entity on the planet. Because it ain't just a radio station, people. It's a TV station as well. Soon to be Talk TV. Coming soon. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
So I'm looking around the papers this morning, story on the front page of The Telegraph. Uh, Rishi Sunak should publish his tax returns in full, Tories have said, as they called for greater transparency for ministers in charge of the nation's finances. Now, Christopher Snowden's a man we talk to a lot about the cost of living, about the way the economy works, which bits of it don't work, what should be really happening. Christopher, very good morning to you. Um, good morning, Mike. I don't know if you agree with me, but I got a feeling that it's a bit like sex to me, tax. People don't really like to talk about it openly. They don't. It's a sort of a dirty little secret. They don't really want people to have to show us their tax returns. But part of them kind of wants to. But it's it's all a bit grubby. Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess that's always been the way. It's uh, the same with people's pay. People traditionally haven't liked uh, talking about it. Understandably, really, there's some people, things people don't want to talk about. Same mm. with politics. Perhaps the, the reason for all those is it might start an argument. Uh, well, indeed. But I mean, where are you on the Rishi Sunak front? Because, I mean, here's a guy who apparently didn't do anything wrong, uh, who's now referred himself to uh, the ethics chief at Downing Street. His wife, who also apparently didn't do anything wrong, who's now changed her status and has, has, has pledged to pay back a load of tax that she owes or certainly pay it in the future. Um, and he's being described as, a, as a, a hypocrite, a man who shouldn't be telling us what tax to pay if he's avoiding paying tax that he should pay. Yeah, I must admit, I cannot whip myself into the same kind of further as a lot of people have over this story. I, I, you know, they, as you say, they haven't done anything wrong. They haven't broken the law. They've been, if anything, particularly Rishi, has been very open about his, uh, his, his tax status and what he pays. I do not get this controversy about him having a US green card at all. Right. Um, and, you know, I think anybody who's angry about them not voluntarily paying more tax than they have to should be you know, telling us how much more extra they're going to pay. Yeah. I, I mean, I know, I know I'm know, i probably in the minority here and it's open season on, on Rishi Sunak and I have no particular reason to defend him, but I really start from the first principle that nobody should be paying any more tax than they have to. Yes, I mean, I think there's a reason why there are certain loopholes, but I think there is probably a slightly different um, sort of rule for people who are in the Treasury, isn't there? There is a slightly different rule for people who are actually making tax law, surely. Um, that they can't really be seen to be taking advantage of loopholes. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, I don't know what the, the issue is supposed to be with, with Rishi. It's mainly been about his wife, who, of course, is a non-dom. Um, well, not Rishi anymore, apparently. Not by right, yeah, because of political pressure. I, I personally think they should have st stood up to it and, and the story would have gone away, probably. It looks like they're confessing some kind of guilt, I think, by well, that's changing the their, their status. Look, she had every right to do what she was doing. I kind of almost look at it from the Indian government's point of view. You know, this was money from an Indian business. Why shouldn't the Indian government be taxing it? She was, she is an Indian citizen still. Yeah. She's not a British citizen. So I don't know. I mean, this is old news. Obviously, I've, I've lost this particular battle. The public opinion's gone completely the other way. Um, I'm not against them paying more tax. I, I understand what you're saying up to a point, but you know she isn't making the tax law. He, of course, is making the tax law, yeah. but he didn't invent the idea of non-dom status. Um, and the non-dom issue is something that pops up every few years. Mm. About 2015, it came up as a big story and then it disappeared again. I think it's reasonable to have non-dom status for people who are not British citizens but want to live here. But, you know, but probably not if you live adjust. in Downing Street at the taxpayer's expense, perhaps. Well, I mean, she's not living there at the taxpayers' expense. I mean, I guess she gets... gets well, not anymore, flat, she's not. She's, well, she's she not was. even living, living there anymore, is well, she? Well, no, but she was living there, and it is a, 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 an apartment or a house, whatever you want to call it, which is owned by, effectively owned by the taxpayer. 
So yeah, and she was paying she was paying UK tax and all her UK income, and she was paying thirty thousand pounds to be a non-don. Yes, but she was also using what is what is for most people an impossible trick because she happens to be able to do so. And I just think you know we've done no point in retreading all the arguments, but I just think at the end of the day, um, I get taxed more and more and more every single bleeding year. Right, every year the treasury comes up with another way to take more money off me. And if the bloke in charge has got a wife who happens to be a billionaire and is richer than the queen. Uh, but he's using a tax loophole to pay less tax in this country. I'm not having it. Well, I mean, I'll go back to the point that she is actually an Indian citizen. She is not a British citizen. She's paying a UK tax on a UK income, paying an Indian tax on her Indian income. That, to me, seems perfectly reasonable. But if people want to change the system, you've got to change the whole system. Don't just pick on individuals and say you must voluntarily pay the kind of tax that you, we think we should do. Yes. Overhaul the whole thing. But yeah. I think you find if you overhaul, overhaul the whole thing, we'll have unintended consequences for other people for whom actually them moving here would be a benefit to the, uh, to the, the British public. Yes. Well, we keep hearing about how beneficial it is when rich people move to London to live. But so far, uh, all we've had is a load of dirty money swilling around from China, Saudi Arabia, uh, the UAE and Russia. Oh, no, that's not necessarily true at all. I mean, other countries have benefited from our ta taxed exiles in the past in terms of um, their talent and and paying actually a fair bit of tax themselves, creating, creating business and work. I don't think we want to go back to the days when you know all our rock stars and movie stars lived in LA, I mean, Rolling Stones even moved to France in the early seventies, didn't they? It was called they Exile on, on Main Street. Yeah. That's why it's called Exile on Main Street. They were tax exiles. So um, let's not go back to the days where France is a more attractive place to live. No, but no, let's, not, let's not forget, Christopher, that we are now the most highly taxed Britons uh, alive since the Second World War. So even though there was a ninety-five percent tax on rock stars back in the sixties, and that's why they all moved away, we're actually taxed more now than we were in the sixties. So what does that tell you? Uh, well, it tells us that the tax burden has risen overall and it's more evenly spread. Um, and Doesn't it's, feel it's like shocking. It, though, it's it? a shocking figure. We're going to be very, in the next year or two, going to the OBR, we're going to be back to the level about 1950, you know, when we were yeah. still coming out of the war. We had literally, we had you know, austerity, we had rationing. And that's the point. You know, we seem to have a very high taxing government. We seem to have a very inefficient economy. Uh, and one of the other subjects I want to talk to you about is what, why everything is so broken in this country. And by that, I mean um, sort of all of the uh, public services that don't work terribly well. The train services in this country are woeful. Uh, we've got airports that can't seem to cope with people who want to go travelling anymore uh, because they haven't got enough people working there. We've got ports where uh, they apparently can't handle trucks going backwards and forwards. You know, it feels as though we're living in this kind of post-COVID nightmare where suddenly everything's catching up, where if you make people do nothing for two years, they forget how to do it. Yeah, I think the, the problem goes even deeper than that. I mean, we're a bit of a clown country. We have politicians who are fundamentally unserious um, at every level. Yeah. And I don't just mean Boris Johnson. I mean, going, going back uh, a very long time, the, the priorities of the political class for a long time have had nothing to do with the cost of living or economic growth. And now we are, so we've been struggling for economic growth for 15 years. The mm. cost of living is finally really starting to bite now. We have not got decent energy security. There are a lot of things that should have been done 10 or 15 years ago. The Institute of Economic Affairs was calling for them. Um, I'm not trying to you know, impose some schadenfreude here, but you know, we, we were not alone in saying that the lights were going to go out unless we took our energy 
responsibility seriously and got fracking and got nuclear yeah. in particular. We need a mix. I'm not one of these tribal people about, about energy. We need a mix of everything, wind, nuclear, fracking, whatever, whatever it may be. But we needed to do it, and, and we need to do it some time ago mm. because they take years to set up. Now, because of Ukraine and because of the rate of inflation, politicians are suddenly going, oh, my word, we need to do, you know, we need to make eight or nine nuclear power stations. This stuff needed to be done a long time ago. Um, all sorts of problems in the economy are caused by the fact that politicians, quite simply, have priorities that are not the priorities of normal working people. Yes. They are much more interested in, for example, you know, tackling obesity or reducing carbon emissions than they are in getting an economy that is highly productive, mm. that grows well, and therefore you can have lower taxes. You know, the, the reality is, you know, it's not just politicians here. They they are doing, to a large extent, what people want. People want more public spending and they want lower taxes. And they can't have both, obviously. And so what we've had is enormous amount of public borrowing. We're down £2.3 trillion in debt. Taxes are going up, but we're still going to be borrowing £100 billion, yeah. uh, Sorry, £100 billion. But you see, I'm not sure. I, I worry about the way that this economy and this country is being stewarded in terms of how much money is being spent in the public sector. Because I don't know that you're right to say that most people want more public spending. I mean, we are limit up on public spending. I'm not sure we can spend any more because what we do spend it on uh, largely doesn't work. You know, the NHS is failing before our very eyes. We've now got um, survey after survey every single day coming out negatively against the NHS. Yesterday's was young people saying, you know, we're actually considering going private because we can't really get the service we want. Today we've got 40% of cancer is only detected once people show up at the A&E. We've got doctor surgery sending people to the A&E. We've got hospitals saying don't come to the A&E. I mean, it's a complete shambles. The idea of giving it more money in order to fix it is a joke. So I would rather see less money spent better on the public services than having more money poured into it. Yes, and I think most people would. But generally speaking, if you tell people horror stories about the NHS, their instinctive response is to say, well, it's underfunded. It needs more money. Yeah, but I think that's changing because I think the narrative now yeah. is changing because more and more people have seen how the NHS behaved during COVID. Yes, they knew that there was a, 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 a problem that had to be dealt with, but the NHS practically shut down for everything else. And lots of people uh, have cost, um, it's cost an awful lot of people their lives. The penny is starting to drop that we are spending well above average for a developed country on healthcare. I th still think we have a few years to go of throwing even more money at the thing before people actually realise that money is not the issue here. Yeah. It's, it's, it's competence. It's also I mean, just a simple lack of staff. Yeah. And everybody in the NHS will tell you that. that you know, there is a severe lack of GPs. There's a lack of doctors. We have about half as many doctors as the average rich country. We have uh, less than half as many beds we have fewer nurses it's very difficult actually to work out what all this money is being spent yeah. on given well, that, that the main cost in the nhs is, is staff salaries well that's right because what there isn't a shortage of is the kind of you know administrative staff the diversity workers the people who get hired you know to make sure that somebody's parking in the right place you know there's an enormous amount of waste in the nhs and anyone that you know who, who works in it will tell you that you know from nurses who find cupboards full of you know, equipment that's run out of date, you know, or, or you know, PPE that was purchased, which wasn't used or ever, ever required. You know, there's a huge swathe. I mean, only yesterday, the NHS Confederation came out and said, we should all start wearing masks indoors again. The NHS Confederation is an organisation uh, with a multi-million pound budget from the NHS, which is p powered up by people on six-figure salaries, most of whom spend their time lobbying to get more money for the NHS. I mean, it's a completely pointless organisation.
Yeah, I'd never even heard of it before the, uh, well, before I looked, the pandemic. Yeah, I don't know I looked, about you. I, I looked it I, up the last time they were in the news, and the guy that runs it, a guy called Matthew Taylor, used to be Tony Blair's chief advisor. Yeah, and he's he's uh, one of the regular panellists on Radio 4's Moral Maze, and his previous job was head of the Royal Society of Arts. Yes. These are not jobs that obviously fit together to suggest that this is somebody who has an enormous amount of expertise about healthcare specifically. No. And he only ever really seems to pop up to have a go at the government and saying we should be um, clamping down on people meeting indoors and getting people wearing face masks. He's been doing this for at least six months. Mm. Um, and I don't really know why anybody pays him a great deal of attention. We already have the British Medical Association. We already have NHS providers. There are just hordes of these people sort of representing supposedly NHS uh, employees and as you say getting a lot of money from mm. the nhs in some way i think an nhs confederation has a budget of 15 million pounds it gets about 12 million pounds of that from the government in various services and contracts but i can't find out the details right. of what these services are i would guess that a lot of it's um conferencing and and, and things like that but i bet none of it is uh, spent on helping nurses treat people on the front line. No, and that's where the problem lies. Stay with us, Christopher, if you would, because I've got lots of things to talk to you about the cost of living, what we should be doing. Let me leave you with this thought. Uh, Cumries has uh, has tweeted me. I phoned a dentist this morning. No appointments till September. Brilliant. Fantastic. Well done. Uh, this is Tuesday, April the 12th. April, May, June, July, August, September. Six months away. See how I had to do that to make sure it was accurate. This is uh, Talk Radio. <laughs> Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. Lots to talk about. Uh, we're talking to Christopher Snowden, Head of Lifestyle Economics at the IEA. We're talking a lot about income tax and all sorts of other taxes, the fact that we are now the most taxed people of Britain since the Second World War. More taxes coming to us now than there were in the 1960s when the Labour government put the highest rate of tax up to something like 95%. Uh, and as uh, Christopher said, the Rolling Stones, Rod Stewart, Eric Claps and all sorts of people disappeared uh, from uh, the country and went to live abroad. Let's talk, Christopher, just about the cost of living uh, spiral at the moment. Do you see any signs of it kind of easing? I know that fuel is driving an awful lot of the cost uh, price rises going on around the economy at the moment, from, from supermarkets to uh, to transportation and everything else. Um, what's what, what what are you seeing as a sort of pattern over the last couple of weeks? Um, well, it's even more long term than that. You've got to be looking really. I mean, the the rise in the price of gas has been one of the main things here alongside the, this general inflationary effect of incredibly loose monetary policy, printing money and so on. But the, the price of gas has a huge knock-on effect on lots of things. One of the things it has an effect on is the price of fertilizer. And um, people might not think very much about fertilizer, but it's pretty fundamental to price of all sorts of things. So uh, fertilizer is created using a byproduct of, of gas and that has gone up enormously and this is not a sudden thing it started going up last year and i think it's up four or five times on what it was pre-pandemic that of course feeds through to shop prices but it feeds through very slowly so farmers will plant their crops in in the autumn very often put the fertilizer on then so the price of the resulting crops doesn't feed through for months and months and months until until the summer basically mm. when it's harvested then it might be uh, it might be barley might be wheat we've seen the price of wheat shoot up worldwide the price of barley is also roughly doubled that is then fed to animals 
and then the price of meat goes up. So we we have a long way to go with this. The um, the official predictions are about nine percent inflation by October, mm. but bear in mind the people making those predictions, the Bank of England, they said this time last year that inflation would be around about two percent for years to come. So I tend to be on that's a, a bit more- worrying pessimistic side to the Bank of England who seem hopelessly optimistic. They're not really doing anything about inflation. They're not really increasing interest rates. They're still where they were before. Well, they're kind the, of terrified um, to do that, aren't they? They seem to have lost that. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, I'm afraid, when interest rates were incredibly high and people had neg- ne- negative equity in their homes and they were paying 13, 14, 15% for a mortgage. Um, I presume that the Bank of England is too frightened to ever go anywhere near those kind of figures. Um, quite possibly. I think they're they're gambling, really. They're gambling that the inflation is going to be transitory. Putting up interest rates, of course, does have an effect on the cost of living as well. You know, people who have got a mortgage out in the last 15 years don't really know what interest rates are. No. And if they went back to historic norms, even of three, four, five percent, then people would be absolutely clobbered with their mortgage payments. So understandably, the Bank of England does want to avoid that. But on the other hand, you don't want inflation running out of control. Now, the data that we had today from the Office of National Statistics is quite interesting. In some ways, quite encouraging. Um, We've got 1.3 million job vacancies, which is by far the highest it's been for certainly 15 years, I suspect, ever. The unemployment rate is only uh, 3.8%. I would have thought after the furlough scheme ended, it was going to be a lot higher than that. So I'm happy to admit I'm wrong. But um, pay hasn't quite kept pace with rate of inflation. So we'll get the new inflation figures tomorrow. The most recent ones give us a year-on-year figure of 6.2%. Pay has gone up by 5.4%. So it's dropped 1% behind um, behind the rate of inflation. Right. Uh, but in a way, that that's better than I expected. You know, uh, like nominal increase in pay of 5.4% is okay. And in the private sector, it's actually 6.2%. Right. So in the private sector, it's actually kept up with the rate of inflation. Now, that is a good good news for employers. Employees, sorry. Mm. And in a way, it's an employee's market. The labor market, because there's 1.3 million vacancies out there, people can say, I'm going to I'm going to go elsewhere. And the best way to get a pay rise is to say that you're going elsewhere Mm. or indeed just to go elsewhere. Yeah. However, the downside of that potentially is you get a wage price spiral. So once people are getting paid more money, well, how does an employer pay people more money? They have to put the prices up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when prices go up, people demand higher wages. One of the theories for years about why we'd never have high inflation again was that we haven't got very strong trade unions. Mm-hmm. Therefore, employees don't have very strong bargaining power. Well, actually, when we have so many job vacancies, employees don't need unions to have strong bargaining power. So it's a double-edged sword. In, in the short term, it, it looks pretty good because people's Living standards are not dropping as fast yet as uh, as was feared. On the other hand, we might see inflation spiralling as a result. Yeah, I think you're right. And I mean, the interesting thing about the union conversation is that, you know, the teaching union is about to have a conference, I think, next week. They're talking about their conditions being so awful and their pay being terrible uh, and the workload being over- overwhelming that they're all going to quit. Uh, we had the union, of course, during the P&O situation, un- un- unable to really do anything at all, completely toothless, you know. And it seems to me now the only unions that are actually worth a fag end are the sort of public service, uh, public sector unions. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's been that way for a long time. So we, we shall see what um, what they do in the health sector and the education sector. It wouldn't surprise me if we start seeing strikes in these areas again. Um, but as far as the private sector goes, I think people very often can bargain for higher wages. They might not be able to quite keep pace with inflation, but they might not be quite as far behind as, as some people fit. So I think there is a glimmer of hope in today's employment data but as i say inflation could well be uh, in double figures mm. by the end of the year 
Um, people have been saying, look, this is not the 1970s. And in terms of living standards, it's not. You know, we are twice as rich as we were in the 1970s. Yes. But I think the potential for a wage price spiral is very much there. And the thing with inflation is there's no good outcome. You know, either people don't get pay rises and their their living standards fall in real terms, or they do get pay rises and inflation continues. Yeah. And I think, Christopher, the point about the way life is now is that people, as you say, have lived for so long in a relative sort of, um, you know, period of, of, of prosperity. They've never really had to tighten their belts. I mean, I remember growing up in the 70s and 80s and there would always be a period where somebody went, oh, we'll have to tighten our belts a bit. Um, but that hasn't really been said for so long. I'm not sure people know how to do it. No, they don't. They expect the government to bail them out. Yeah. Um, and, and the government generally has for the last 15 years, at least. Every time there's a crisis, there's just been another splurge of, of borrowing. Mm. And eventually you've got to pay the fiddler. And I think the time has, has come now where with £2.3 trillion of debt, um, inflation rising, and that infects your, affects the debt interest payments. I think the borrowing party is surely going to be over pretty soon but as i say the government is still planning on borrowing 100 billion pounds this year which mm. is by any historical standards enormous it is absolutely christopher good to talk to you thank you very much indeed christopher snowden head of lifestyle economics of the iea i can say that when he said it's time to pay the fiddler that was in no way a reference to the current chancellor of the exchequer arishi sunak let's of course now get some news headlines Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Now, I've got a little announcement for you. From Wednesday evening, you won't be able to watch us live as we build up to the launch of Talk TV. In the meantime, you can listen as usual on DAB Plus and on your Talk Radio app. We will bring you more details in the coming days. But basically, the home of Common Sense will be back on your TV screens on Monday, the 25th of April. So that uh, is a date to put in your little diary. Uh, shortly before we consider our next guest, uh, the uh, incredibly uh, brilliant Professor Carol Secura, medical director of Rutherford Cancer Centres. Let me read you a couple of texts out, right? Uh, here's one from Dodo. A 6% pay rise on £9.50 minimum wage is 57 pence. That will not pay for the 100% increase in energy prices. And nobody, says Benedict, likes paying tax. I don't think anyone would voluntarily pay more tax. If there is any legal way to bring down tax or avoid it, people do so. Just false outrage and a number 10 character assassination of a political opponent that people have fallen for. Well, I think there's a slight difference, I have to say, Benedict, between you, me and Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak's the Chancellor of the Exchequer. He makes the rules about tax. He's got a wife who has been avoiding tax. Now, there's nothing wrong with that if you're a private individual. But if you're the Chancellor of the Exchequer, I think there really is. And just on the subject of the NHS, this is from Gary. Trying to get an appointment with the doctor. I'm told to ring as close to 8.30am as possible for the same day. I work. I can't just walk out of work at an unknown time if I get an appointment. I ended the call saying... I just hope it isn't anything important. Well, there you go. That's the problem. Let's talk to Carol Sakura to find out what the latest uh, figures are. Uh, and they're not good, by the way, on cancer detection. Carol, a very good morning to you. Morning. Thanks for joining us, Carol. I know you're a busy man. I mean, we've been talking about the NHS, you and I, for a couple of years now. Um, most recently, I've been banging the drum for um, a rel relaxation of the COVID rules and restrictions, which are stopping people from being able to see their relatives who are in hospital. Today, we see that um, the A&E is very much under, under the, the microscope because doctors are being told, don't send people to the A&E uh, because we'll be overwhelmed. People are told, well, there's nowhere else you can go. We're now learning that 40% of cancers are only detected when people go to A&E. That's extraordinary, isn't it? It is quite extraordinary. We're the worst country in Europe for this. And uh, the reason it's really important, Mike, is that 
emergency presentations of cancer mean that the cancer is usually spread uh, because it's not just a small lump. It's not just a niggle of a cough that the x-ray shows a small curable lung cancer. It's not just a bit of diarrhea, but a change in bowel habit that leads to the discovery of colon cancer. Something catastrophic is driving the patients to the emergency room. Mm the problem yes and the problem as well it seems to me and you, you've spoken about this before carol uh, is the, the the system got better for a while but only part of the system you know so the pre the sort of the pre-detection somehow got better but then the referral didn't did it exactly um, cancer diagnosis depends on getting things early and we've known that for years i was on a department of health committee 20 years ago and we came up with a two-week wait as a sort of stop before you improve the capacity to diagnose cancer. Uh, and it's still going on. Mm. The problem with two-week wait is poor old GPs are sitting there. They can't, without any tests, sort out who's got cancer and who's not. So only 25% or so patients that have cancer come through that system. The rest go through the slow track. And just like at Heathrow, if you've got a fast track and a slow track, the slow one gets slower and slower mm. as people prioritise the fast track. So it's difficult. And the other worrying thing, Mike, this 40% data was published last week in The Lancet, and it refers to Britain before 2017. Wow. In other words, long before the pandemic. Now, what the pandemic's done to this data, <clears throat> I would imagine, is disastrous. Oh, I'm sure it has, because we were also learning, I think it was last week or the week before, of another study which showed that something like stage one, stage two cancers are really only developed, discovered on a 50-50 basis. You've got something, something like 54% uh, of stage one and stage two cancers are detected when they are safely detected so that survival rates are high. Um, and, and, and which basically means it's a 50-50 chance. So they're hoping to get it to 75% detection by something like 2028. I mean, it's not very ambitious, is it? Not ambitious and probably not achievable unless we radically change the system. It's, it's a good target to have, uh, but you've got to make it work. And it can't happen overnight. You've got to get there. The reason it's important, Mike, is that stage one and two cancers remain localised to the organ they come from, the lung, breast, prostate, wherever, and therefore they're curable by radiotherapy, by surgery and so on. Once they spread, it's much more difficult to cure. It's yeah. also much more expensive to treat. So yes. it saves money to pick up early. Well, you would think. And, and you and I have been um, at the, the, the wrong end of quite a lot of criticism over, over the last couple of years, Carol, for, for various things that we've said. Um, how are you finding the medical kind of establishment at the moment in terms of um, how it's dealing with post-COVID trauma? Because it seems to me that there's still a sort of rump of, of part of it which wants us to continue with mask wearing, wants us to continue to be worried about COVID, wants us not to really move on from it and forget about it. Um, and then there's other people trying to sort of get back to normal. It, it's amazing. I mean, you go any public place, you can see the warriors, the fear, mm. the psychology of fear is still there. They tend to be older, uh, but the, some young people are involved too. And that profoundly affects the way the health system works, because if you've got people within it that are scared, uh, they convey that fear to others. And we've got to get out of it. We've got to learn to live with it. And Boris is quite right. We, we can't use even think about lockdown again unless something disastrously new happens. Mm. At the moment, 
everything is looking really good uh, in terms of COVID. It's not looking so great in terms of other healthcare aspects with 6 million people waiting for something from the NHS. We've got to just deal with that problem. Yes, exactly right. And since you and I last spoke, Professor, how is that going? Because you've been hopeful that you can start to reduce those waiting lists, that you can see more people, see more patients. One of the things um, from this report uh, this morning about 40% of cancers only diagnosed at the A&E is, is a shameful um, statistic and one which we should be all be ashamed of. Apparently doctors have kind of put many people off and just missed the condition and said, well, there's nothing wrong with you. Go away. It, it is getting better now. Um, COVID is going, general practice is getting back to face-to-face, which is what it really should be. Mm. And the problem of not having face-to-face, you just don't get the the whole ambience of the patient. If you don't know the person, and most GPs, let's face it, don't know their patients anymore. They used to. Mm. When I was a kid, the family, I had a bit of asthma, the GP would come around and give me some uh, nebulizer and I'd be better. Uh, but they don't know us anymore, and that's the way it works. It's part-time, it's sessional work and so on. So it's really important that people that have new symptoms get seen somehow. Yeah. And yeah. how do you do that? Like, if you are a, a, a somebody who's worried that you might have something serious and the doctor's kind of not quite giving you the attention that you need, what's the, what, have you got any sort of insider tips as to how to get seen properly? <laughs> You know, getting inside the NHS is nigh on impossible. I mean, partly because it's free and partly because it's overused for a lot of trivial things. Uh, But you're right. If you're really worried, the main message, if you've got progressive symptoms of any sort at any part of the body, is be persistent. Mm. Don't be aggressive. Don't be rude to anybody. Don't shout or swear at the receptionist. It won't get you anywhere. But be persistent. Phone up 111. Go back and get another appointment. Just And in the end, someone will see you and sort it out. One yes. is actually a great system. It's the telephone uh, system, which follows a, a very good algorithm, a very safe algorithm. And although the people aren't experts that run it, uh, it's not a bad way to pick up those that have got symptoms that need sorting out in a rapid manner. Mm. And finally, uh, Professor Carroll, um, NHS doctors told to work late to avoid A&E chaos. This is guidance from the NHS. You know, we're always told that doctors have already got an overcrowded timetable. They're overworked. You know, many of them are leaving the GP business because they're working so hard. They're not going to work later, are they? They're not going to do it. Uh, If you pay them, everybody will work. But uh, I think it's got to be structured. And, you know, the, the trouble with A&E is 80% of the patients that come have something relatively trivial and mm. don't need to be there. Right. They're only there because they can't get into the system anywhere else. Well, that's, that's right. The problem with it all. Well, I mean, when I had, had very young children, you know, and you would call the, the number because you might be worried they had a temperature or something like that, their, their sort of stock answer was always, well, you could always take them to A&E. And you go, well, what's the point of this advice line if all you're telling me to do is, if you're worried, take them to A&E? Well, of course I'm worried. I'm their father. You know, but it doesn't mean that there's anything necessarily terribly wrong with them. And I don't really want to take them to A&E if if they're going to be fine if I just give them some cowpoles. You know what I mean? Uh, Exactly right. I mean, my daughter did the same with me when I was a bit younger. And she said, you're out of date, Dad. And then I found after I'd seen uh, my granddaughter uh, with a little fever, I said, just give some cowpaw. And gone in the morning, she she was taking the baby around to A&E, not believing me that 
how daughters behave. Right. Oh, I know. It is extraordinary. But anyway, listen, we're all here still. We're all surviving. So uh, good luck. Nice to see you. Uh, we shall see you soon. Professor Carol Sakura, the medical director of Rutherford Cancer Centres. But I'm sorry, you know, it's a refrain that I'm not going to leave alone because people have told me they want me to continue to press the buttons on this. All the way back to two weeks ago when we first started talking about visiting rights for people going to hospital to see their loved ones, right? Being stopped from visiting for more than one hour at a time. Being told that only one person, one named person, could visit that said relative over the course of the week that they were in. Since then, yesterday we heard that ambulance services are now so bad that the head of emergency medicine inside the NHS itself has said that... The, the, the ambulance service is not fit for purpose, that the, um, the waiting times are appalling, in her words, and that basically they are failing patients because they're supposed to help the sickest people, the people who need help the most, who have to go to hospital in an ambulance. They're being failed by the system. This morning, uh, we hear that basically 40% of cancer is detected only when a patient turns up at A&E. That can't be right, can it? Yesterday, we heard that children and young people are more likely to go and get private health care because they simply don't trust the NHS anymore. It really is absolutely and utterly ridiculous. So we want to hear from you. Um, A&E apparently is going to be overwhelmed over Easter. So all doctors are being told they have to work later in order to make sure that that doesn't happen. I'm sick to death of hearing about how the NHS is going to be overwhelmed. It's never been overwhelmed. There's not enough people working in it because there's too many people working at the thick end of it. And I say the thick end of it deliberately. Places where there's no need for medical expertise. Places like the NHS Confederation. Places where people don't care about patients. They only care about budgets. And that, I'm afraid, is no way to run supposedly the world's greatest healthcare service, which we all know is the biggest joke around. This is Talk Radio. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Talk Radio. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Yes, we are back. This is, of course, the home of common sense. It is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Welcome. Uh, to a very, very lovely Tuesday uh, where the sky is looking reasonably good, I would say. The cloud ceiling's high. Um, You can't go anywhere, of course, because the airports are all messed up and the trains aren't running and there's going to be loads of cars on the road at the weekend. Britain is basically uh, broken, I'm afraid. And I know that's a hoary old phrase, but it's true. Uh, Laura Dodsworth is here. I might ask you a bit about that, but you've got some very interesting other things to talk about with me as well. Uh, we've been talking about Rishi Sunak. Should politicians' salaries and uh, perks and tax uh, returns, indeed, be all public so that we can all see what they're up to? Or should they have some level of privacy? I think there's no doubt that if you're the Chancellor of the Exchequer and you're married to one of the richest women in the world who apparently is using a tax loophole while you are taxing the public more and more every single year, that's probably a bit of a no-no, Rishi, I'm sorry. Fishy Rishi is what he was called yesterday by uh, Peter Hitchens. I think that will stick, I'm afraid. 0344 499 1000 is the number. But I can also tell you that I've got a brand new announcement to make for you here because here at the Home of Common Sense, uh, we are now going to be back on your TV screens in a bigger and better way, not just uh, on YouTube, not just on talkradio.tv, but we will also be on Sky Channel 526. We will be on Virgin Media Channel 627. We'll be on Freeview Channel 237 will be on Freesat Channel 217, plus all of the other connected apps from Monday, the 25th of April. Don't forget, you'll be able to see us. You can put everything on in the house at the same time. You know, seven different screens of me. What could be better? Hmm? This is Talk Radio. 
the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Do you know they once said you could fill the, the, the studio with TV screens, and apparently if you do that, it gets really hot. So I don't know if it's a good idea. We want to sit here looking like that guy from Broadcast News. Oh, it's you know. like it's like that when we both walk in. Anyway, it is true. Isn't it, Mike? The temperature definitely rises when you come <laughs> into the studio. It's not uh, it's not untrue. Welcome and very good uh, happy Tuesday to you. Good morning. It was exciting hearing all those numbers. Isn't it and just? I, but you know um, what you've been doing at Talk Radio for a long time is quite punchy, quite visual. Yes. You know you're great to listen to on the radio, but. It is also quite, it's, you know, it's still good to watch. I, I like seeing the guests yes. when they talk. People tell me they like seeing me here I'm sure too they do. talking to I'm sure they do. I think it's, um, I think it's great. It's just becoming more We've visual. We've really created something here, and it's now going to sort of be turbocharged into something even yeah. bigger and even more kind of widespread. So mm. you'll be able to basically watch us on your television, talk there's TV. A, there's a lot of people this works for. You know, some people have got their TV on in the kitchen mm. all day, yes. and it's just on one channel. So it just makes, makes life... Um, it does. People love watching it as well, because, you know, the thing about... Um, broadcast radio now is that habits have changed too yeah you know there was for example you know the drive home not everybody does the drive home anymore because not everybody works the same hours so you know not everybody's listening to the radio while they're driving home in their car anymore because they're not doing it you know exactly it's it's just whenever you whenever you want to tune in and watch yeah. it and catch up exactly right so so, so I, I really wanted to talk to you today about some there's some quite shocking videos that mm. have been circulating on social media now, I've sat in this seat before and said to people, you shouldn't reshare information that hasn't been verified. Yes. But the problem is the information I want to talk about is coming out of Shanghai yeah. and we can't verify it. Right. So Shanghai has been under a very strict lockdown now mm. for weeks. This is 26 million people have been locked down. And this not is like their sort of zero COVID stuff, right? Yeah. What we're seeing is what the cruelty and the futility of zero covid actually looks like mm. when a whole city is subjected to it so you might have remember you might remember from several weeks ago in the news we saw um white clothed public health officials like something out of squid game mm. walking into shanghai there were thirty-eight thousand public health people who've gone into the city to stamp out covid mm. in every way possible and the chinese authorities aren't letting anyone or any animal get in the way so I shared a retweet of a video myself this week. I can't be certain it's from Shanghai, but um, there have been a number of reports. That, as long as you say that you're not certain, I think that kind of covers it, doesn't it? Well, I can't be certain, but the thing is there aren't journalists on the ground in Shanghai no. because it's under lockdown. So you have to go with the most credible mm. reports you can find. But what we do know is that this has happened in China already. It happened in November. The BBC reported on a dog um, and some cats that were killed in, yeah. in other cities. So there were a group of public health officials beating a dog to death. It's a very, very distressing mm. image. And what's happened is that when people are found to be positive, they're going to these COVID quarantine camps. My God, that's another story. Um, and then the dogs don't have anyone to look after them and public health officials have been killing them yeah. because they've just been set loose. Because yeah. they're, otherwise they're going to starve to death in their flats. Mm. Um and they've been they've been murdered basically massacred. Yes. So very... and there have been other stories, haven't there, about other cities? I'm not sure if, if uh, Shanghai is one of them, where they have, by just a force of, of of will, been killing dogs if the pet if the the person who owned the dog got COVID. Yeah. Well, in Shangrao in 
in China in November. That's the BBC article that I'm talking about. That was confirmed. Yeah. Now, people think there's um, a background context, context of Chinese cruelty towards animals. You know, we have this impression about, don't we, because there's the Yulin Dog Meat Festival. Yeah. And, and, you know, not all cultures have got the same attitudes that we have um, in Britain mm. towards pets. But I just wanted to say that there has been outrage in Chinese social media mm. about this as well. You know, they have their own platform called Weibo. Okay. And um, it was flooded with responses to these videos. Mm. Another reason why these videos aren't easy to verify is because they keep being deleted and then being reposted, so you can't trace the original source. Mm. But people saying things like, pets are family too. Who gave them the right to break into her home and kill the dog? This is a violation of a, a citizen's privacy. So the Chinese are up in arms about it as well. Mm. Who knew they could even be up in arms? Well, they can't be up in arms, can they? Because they are in this crazy lockdown. Look, what's happened is that um, people are not allowed to leave even their apartment door. They're right. not allowed to go to the shop. There's no exception. There's no exception at all. Mm. So you've got big um, tower blocks where maybe two residents are given permission to go and get the food deliveries once a day. Right. There are food shortages. People are tweeting that they don't have enough to eat. Um, Last week, the Mail reported about food looting um, as panic buying turned into food looting. And these scenes look completely dystopic. Yeah. Um, you've got these public health officials again in their white Squid Game-esque yeah. outfits guarding food parcels. I saw one of them apparently marching a child away from um, wherever the child was wearing a very ridiculously oversized white suit. And the kid just looked completely bewildered and they were sort of marching him off into the back of a van or something like that because presumably they'd yeah. found the child wandering the streets, perhaps, I don't know. It must be so funny. So how long have they been doing this lockdown? Um, they've been doing it for a good couple of weeks. Right. Now they're talking about potentially relaxing the restrictions, but they have said they wouldn't relax restrictions until there are no COVID cases, mm. no positive cases in particular areas. The problem is... The problem is, Mike, despite this um, exemplar of zero COVID, this total lockdown, mm. cases are rising. In fact, they've got record numbers of cases now in Shanghai because zero COVID doesn't work. No. It's just... Um, and presumably it's the same kind of COVID um, strain that we've got here or that we've had or a var variation of it in some way, shape or form, which is not particularly dangerous, right? Um, I guess they've got Omicron. Um, is it the BA2 variant they've got at the moment? I'll be honest, I'm not sure. But, um, you know, zero COVID doesn't work. That's, mm. that's what we can see. You talked about the child. Now, these videos of pets being killed have obviously captured the imagination here in Britain. But they've been separating babies and children from their families as well and putting people into these mm. COVID quarantine camps. So you've got people stuck in their apartment, unable to get food, or even in some cases, medical care, they're not even supposed to open their window. You've got families being separated. And then when people go to the COVID camps, there've been reports about what they're like. They're lacking basic provisions and facilities and medical care. Um, I mean, dirty, yeah. one sink between numbers of people. They're in dormitory-like um, conditions. Now, imagine if somebody had a false positive rather than a real positive. Yeah. They're certainly going to catch COVID there. And then guess what? At the end of all of this brutality, it's not even working because their cases are mm. rising. And presumably their economy is fading into oblivion isn't it if nobody's doing anything if everybody's at home well it's got to be of course there was looting i mean we had um, martin lewis in this country warning that the cost of living could end up fueling civil unrest really is it any wonder if you shut down 
economies, if you lock down people, it's going to result ultimately in civil unrest. You can't lock down economies like this. No. It's been a ridiculous experiment and we're seeing where it can lead. So I hope that everyone that called for zero COVID and said we never did anything mm. properly will look at Shanghai and see where it goes. That's what it looks yes. like. Well, I don't know if you remember last week, we were looking at a, a, a leaflet from NHS Hampshire, which had zero COVID stamped on the front of it, as if that's some kind of new NHS mantra. Which mm. I think it is, because given what NHS Confederation came out with yesterday, telling us that, you know, it's time to go back to wearing masks indoors, it's time to go back to more precautions, we shouldn't be, you know, forgetting about COVID, it's still there and it's still dangerous. It's like, shut up! Mike, they're absolutely bonkers. OK, right now, we've got below five-year average deaths uh, for pre-pandemic times, right. OK? Yeah. I think there's only about 5% of hospital admissions at the moment are actually with covid Oh, I can't be absolutely crystal clear on mm. that figure right now, I have to say. Um, but the fact is that admissions have already peaked, okay? Mm. So we know cases have peaked and they're falling. Admissions, it looks like they've now peaked. Mm. And this is without restrictions. Right. There is no way on earth we need restrictions now. People are talking about COVID Easter, like we did yeah. about COVID Christmas. Oh, this yeah. kind of comes Apparently kind we're of... going to be overwhelmed again. I mean, when are they going to stop? Uh, and also, where did this idea of this kind of social contract come from? If the NHS is struggling, that the whole country needs to don masks mm. which don't work and yeah. shut down. I've never signed up for this. Yeah. None of us have signed up for this. Of course not. They've completely lost the plot, those public health officials. Yeah, they really have. It seems that they don't know what to do without COVID. They can't sort of operate because they can keep using it as an excuse for their inefficiency. And that's what I think it's about. They're masking their complete and utter inefficiency because we're now seeing... Britain at its pretty much most inefficient that I've ever known it. And I lived in the 70s, you know, when things were pretty bad. But now we've got, as I continue to say, mantra style, a border force that doesn't stop people coming into the country, a police force that doesn't arrest people, doctors that don't treat anyone. Uh, we've now got airlines that don't want anyone to fly. We've now got ferry services that can't cope with the numbers of people who want to cross the channel. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I know. People need to buckle up and get back on with real life. And all they do is, well, it's because of COVID, you know. EasyJet cancelling more flights, British Airways the same, saying we haven't got enough staff. Well, get some bloody staff. Do you know there's something, though, that links these, these two things together? The fact that public health officials here are uh, still kind of hanging on to zero COVID mm. coattails and all of the cruelty and the madness that we're seeing unfold in Shanghai. The thing is that people can be persuaded to do some quite balmy and unbelievable things. There's a story about something that happened in this country which is almost forgotten. Now, considering the outrage that we've seen on social media in this country mm. about the, the dogs and the cats being killed in Shanghai, yeah. I think it'll surprise people to know that before World War II, mm. over 750,000 pets were killed in this country in a week. So the well, deliberately, you mean? Uh, deliberately, yes, euthanized. Right. So the British government formed the National Air Raid Precautions Animal Committee because there was a fear about when bombing started and food shortages, what would happen to pets? You mm. know, food uh, pets didn't have ration books. And this pamphlet, which was very widely distributed and all the advice was repeated in the newspapers and on the BBC, right. advised people that they should uh, send their pets to relatives in the country, but like children being yes. evacuated. And if they couldn't, the kindest thing to do would be to destroy them. Wow. Now, unbelievably, this pamphlet also had an ad for a gun that was ideal to dispatch your pet. 
people dispatched their own pets, they took them to organisations like the RSPCA to euthanasia. Mm -hmm. So we had this weird inversion where organisations that would normally be looking after pets were putting them down. Now at the time you had organisations and individuals speak up and say, wait, wait, this yeah. might be a bit precipitous, yeah, let's not sure? kill, kill all the country's pets. And yet people did it. And then when the first wave of bombing started, there was another huge wave of pets mm. that were dispatched oh, as goodness. well. So people wouldn't expect that in this in this country of um, animal, An lovers of animal lovers yeah, and absolutely. pet lovers, but we were responsible I mean, for this huge pet massacre. It was an extraordinary time. I can't imagine what it must have been like to be living in London, for example, in 1939, when you were about to be bombed by German planes, and you were going to go in, all right then. I mean, I think if you were told to do something like we were told to lock down two years ago, you probably would do it, wouldn't you? I think actually this says more about the whole kind of madness of crowds, yeah. actually. Think about people stockpiling loo roll. I, I can tell you right now, if I got a pamphlet telling me the mm. kindest thing is to kill my pet, I wouldn't do it. No. You know, you can all... Uh, no. no but I can see why people did much, it. Yeah, but you're but a much no. more sophisticated person and probably the world is a much more sophisticated place. And the government in those days was a very different uh, animal. It had a very different relationship, I imagine, with the people. I mean, look at World War One. Your country needs you. You know, my grandfather pretended yeah. to be 17 when he wasn't, he was 16, so that he could sign up and go to France, you know? I, I had the same, I had a relative at the age of 15, um, he marched across the country eating raw turnips, I tell no lie, to sign up, mm -hmm. and was told he was too young, went to the back of the queue and lied about his age better when he got to yeah. the front. Of course. And we wouldn't do that now, would we? I don't know, I don't know, but I, w I just wanted to make the point that while we're decrying people in China killing their pets, it's actually not even anywhere close to the scale that we did it in this country mm. people are capable of some quite astonishing oh, actions no question no question at all uh, speaking of which we'll talk about rishi sunak and his wife coming up next with laura dodsworth talk radio best recipe ever pan national agitated debate and discussion radio with an answer for everything powered by your opinions something to talk about talk radio a home of common sense Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio, the home of common sense, soon to be Talk TV, of course, as we were explaining earlier, all over the place. You'll be able to watch us everywhere you go. Laura Dodsworth is here with us. Um, just actually before we move on to Rishi Sunak, I did see a story, I think, just the other day, uh, in which it said that Russian soldiers were eating dogs um, in Ukraine because they didn't have anything else to eat in some parts of it. Again, I haven't had that verified. I don't know if it's true, but it was a report that I saw from somebody. But let's talk about Rishi Sunak. Um, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, yeah. who doesn't think he's done anything wrong, but has referred himself to the Ethics uh, Board at Downing Street, which is mm. a pretty funny situation in and of itself. Um, his wife, I nearly said his mother, a Freudian slip, his wife apparently hasn't done anything wrong either, mm. but now she's changed her status from non-dom to dom, and she's going to pay more tax. Yeah, so well, they have done something wrong, but it's not, it's, it's not that. OK, so there was something about this whole story which unsettled me all along almost like a little feeling of hurt mm. a little feeling of betrayal and joanna williams has written a great article in spiked um about fishy rishi mm. as peter's called him yeah. Hitchens called him and it really summed up what had unsettled me about this whole story now it's obviously quite unpalatable if his uh wife mm. who is richer than the queen apparently has non-dom status but it's all perfectly legally above board yes you know you can be non-dom for 15 years and then you, d you don't get taxed on your income in this country you get you only get taxed sorry you can 
you won't be taxed in the UK on your income that's generated in another country. Yes. Well, it so seems she's not, fair, actually, doesn't it? It's a way of creating a tax haven. It's what we decided to do well, as a country. Well, not if she's paying the tax. I don't think you should have to pay tax in two countries. I mean, I'm not I'm not uh, on Rishi's side here at all. I think he's, he, you're right. I, I, I think he's made a massive error, massive misjudgment, because he shouldn't have done it. But I think if she's paying the tax on the money she's making in India, why should she pay tax on it again here? Well, she shouldn't pay tax on it twice. No. I mean, it's all perfectly legally above Mm. board. This wasn't the main point that unsettled me. Of course, it's unpalatable. We, the ordinary people, have national insurance tax rises Mm. and a cost of living crunch. And, you know, there's this kind of feeling of, well, it's one rule for them, one rule for us. I I don't know how to go about being non-dom and set up a business in the Cayman Islands or wherever and not get taxed on it. Which you mean you haven't got a green card? Well, this is the thing that unsettled me. Mm. It was finding out that he had a green card a year into his job. Um, I'm going to just make sure I get this absolutely right from the article because this is, don't want to get this um, wrong about him, but he had, yeah, he had his green card for a year into his political role until October 21. Mm. He's got the second most powerful position in the country and he had a green card now if you have a green card that means you're serious about becoming a u.s resident well you're called on the card it actually says resident alien that's what it says right so rishi sunak has a constituency in yorkshire Mm. now yorkshire is the beating heart of the country it's god's own country well you could say that Lots of people think of it that way. And it's certainly where his beating heart should Mm. be because it's his constituency. But it seems that his heart is actually in California, in Santa Monica, to be precise. More houses than, you know, the House of Usher or whatever it is. He does have lots of houses. He does have a lot of houses. So I don't know where his heart is. But it's rumoured that his plan is to move, you know, after the next job, PM, I think he was tipped to be the next party leader, to, to go to California. No, it won't happen now. And I think that what this comes down to is you, you want to feel, not just that we're all in it together in terms of fairness, but that you want to be, you want to be in the same place. Mm. He's revealed himself to be a nowhere person, or mm. rather an anywhere person, not a somewhere person. You know, I'm a somewhere person. I, I love this land, I love this country, I love our people. Uh-huh. And he's instead part of this kind of globe-trotting elite. You know, yeah. the world's a playground. Right. And it makes it feel like being a chancellor, or perhaps PM, is just part of a pit stop on his CV. Mm. I suspect that his constituents are feeling a little bit betrayed, a little bit hurt. It feels yeah. a little bit like a slap in the face. Uh-huh. If, while he's in the second most powerful position in politics and supposedly representing them. In fact, all along he had a plan to move to another country. Again, there's nothing actually technically wrong with it. It just doesn't feel right. No, it doesn't. And I mean, I I don't know what to say about um, being married to somebody incredibly wealthy. I mean, he's also pretty wealthy in his own right. Um, I think the mistake he made as well was to try and make out that he understood what people were going through, because he clearly doesn't. And I think there is certainly some truth to the fact that people who are that rich do have completely different lives. I mean, there is nothing... in We have nothing in common with people like that. Nothing. No, and actually, I don't really... You know, they really fly around private jets. They don't queue up at EasyJet waiting for the, you know, fastest boarding to get on. You know, they don't do don't wait for their luggage. They've got people that do that for them. They don't clean the toilet. Yeah. They've got somebody that does that for them. They don't, you know, go shopping. They go to personal shoppers in Selfridges, because I know this from talking to people who used to, to do that. Um... They don't walk around. What, they don't go to Aldi like me? No. 
They don't know. I mean, I'm talking about when they go to like places like Harrods. They go to yeah. a separate room where they get given a glass of wine and they get offered things and they get mm. shown things and they don't have to go around the actual shop. I mean, heaven forbid. You know, they don't worry about going to restaurants. They just get private dining rooms. Well, the thing All is, that that. I, I don't begrudge the success or the wealth. That's fantastic. But I'm not sure I want somebody that out of touch governing no. us. There's another aspect of I don't begrudge any the... of it, but no. it's like, don't tell me you know how I feel and how much my electricity bill's gone up because you don't know. But there's another aspect to this which doesn't sit right. Sure, they've done everything above board, but he seems to be kind of wrong-footed by the fact that this has bothered people. Now, um, he's in charge of the, the country's purse strings. I think it would have um, befitted him to understand how people might feel about this. Mm. He, he doesn't seem to have understood that this would turn people against him. Right. So far from his ambitions of being the next PM, he's now less popular than Keir Starmer. And that is a huge switcheroo. That's not a good place to be. No. I mean, that's, that's an achievement, to be less popular than Keir yeah. Starmer right now. And I don't think he gets why. I, I believe the reason why it isn't just about the tax status and not being like the same as the rest of us, you know, he's richer. It's the fact that he doesn't see himself as belonging here. No. The world's a playground yeah. to a certain set of people. Yeah. And while I don't begrudge them um, the success or the wealth, I think that's fantastic good on them. I don't really want to be governed by people yeah. who aren't somewhere people. They're nowhere no, people. No, and they govern their year by where they are, right? So yeah. it's summer. So where are you? Oh, must be in the south of France. It's where everybody goes, doesn't it? Winter, San Moritz. You know, what about you know um, Davos, or why don't we go to you know Colorado for a bit of skiing at Vale? You know, all of this stuff. I mean, it's a different world. It's not my world. I'm too busy working and paying tax. I think you'll find. <laughs> uh, Laura, great to see you. Um, we will see you next week, but we won't see you next week if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. Which is a slightly complicated uh, riddle. See if you can work it out. Uh, but we will be here continually uh, on the radio before we relaunch and launch as a new sparkling entity known as live tv uh, this is talk radio the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio good afternoon and welcome back to the independent republic of mike graham right here at the home of common sense it is of course talk radio tv uh, soon to become talk tv uh, look out for all of that happening very, very soon. We're going to be on Sky, we're going to be on Virgin Media, uh, we're going to be on Freesat, we're going to be all over the place, Freeview as well. Uh, you'll be able to watch us on all manner of different devices. It's all happening uh, within the next couple of weeks. It's very, very exciting stuff. We've been talking about Rishi Sunak in this hour. Uh, we've been talking in the show already uh, about the crisis facing people because of the cost of living. We've talked about the crisis facing people who are trying to get seen by the NHS. In this hour, uh, we're going to be talking about how child mental health services are apparently at breaking point because referrals are rising uh, faster than ever and it can't be a surprise to anyone uh, who watched what happened over the last couple of years with lockdowns with schools being closed with schools having to issue all kinds of instructions that kids would have to test themselves three times a week that they would have to wear masks in classroom they'd have to definitely wear masks walking down corridors they'd have to be really careful when they went home they didn't pass on a deadly virus to their elderly parents or possibly their grandparents killing them i mean no wonder our children are under some pressure um, to be able to just exist, to just have a life that they could enjoy. So many children uh, didn't have a very good um, lockdown. We hear all the time about people who said, oh yeah, working from home was fine. Well, working from home was fine for some people, wasn't fine for a lot of people. And don't forget, a lot of people couldn't work from home. And what were you supposed to do if you had, say, a blue collar job? Say you were out fixing cars, say you were out there working in a supermarket or driving a bus or driving a train. And what about those kids? 
whose parents weren't at home, who had to fend for themselves. We'll talk to Dr Zenobia Stora, who's a child and adolescent senior clinical psychologist, about the effect, the long-term effect that this has had, because it's clearly a problem and it needs to be sorted out. 0344 499 1000. Carol Decker's going to be here as well. Uh, you might remember that song, China in My Hand, from Tapao. Uh, Tapao embarking on a tour uh, with all kinds of people, Paul Young and Hugh and Cry. Uh, she's also been performing post-COVID uh, on some ships, I understand. We'll talk about that. Uh, and she will be telling us also about how life has been for her as a performer, unable to actually perform. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. Keep your calls coming in. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So we've all seen various kind of collateral damage done by the lockdowns, many uh, medics now realising that somehow, perhaps, the government was a little bit overzealous in some of the lockdowns that went on. Let's not forget that just before the Easter holidays, there are plenty of schools around the country where people are still having to wear masks, where children are being told to wear masks, where children are still not really able to return completely to normal. Let's talk to Dr Zenobia Stora to find out just how bad things are. Uh, Dr Zenobia, very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, I mean, it shouldn't really come as any surprise to any of us that kids have suffered as a result of what's been going on for the last two years. But apparently referrals to uh, child mental health services are massively up. What, what, is, what is generally the, the, the referral for? Yes, and indeed they are. And as you say, it doesn't come as a surprise at all. In fact, we've had information about this right the way through from the end of uh, 2020. And, and anyone with any... Um, imagination working services would be expecting that to be honest so i mean at the moment we've got you know extraordinary figures that are coming through that are not a surprise to anyone with any imagination about mental health and i saw a report a few weeks ago from the nuffield trust that was talking about an 81 percent increase in referral for children's mental health services up as 81 up comes up from the same period in 2019 and that was the april to october period of 2021 right. and just to give your listeners some perspective of that Compared with adult referrals, that we're, we're, they were looking at 11% increase. So the pandemic does seem to have hit children and young people extremely yeah. hard. And and as um, um, a psychologist who looks at the troubles that children have as a result of this kind of activity, what is mostly the complaint? What are they being referred for exactly? There's lots of anxiety disorders coming through, um, low mood, self-harm, those sorts of problems. Eating disorder is up. Um, there's lots of issues around um, gender dysmorphia too, which is a very complex subject. Um, th- these problems have been been coming through, and they were actually in a massive increase even before the pandemic, but they have really escalated since. Yeah. So services were really struggling to meet children's needs before the pandemic, but we've seen a huge increase since March 2020 in children's distress and also in demand on services. Right. And what kind of treatment can children receive if they are referred um, for child mental health services? Well, they should be expecting specialist mental health um, uh, interventions from highly qualified um, professionals such as clinical psychologists or um, child psychiatrists and CBT workers, um, mental health nurses. But it's very, very difficult for children to actually be seen as, as you know, some of the reports have been coming through um, have have. Uh, have surmised it's, it's just the demand is so great and the um and the criteria is now so sky high for children to meet the criteria for for services that right. children are often left alone and so as, as a, i work privately as well so i'm, I'm constantly getting um 
uh, referrals and self-referrals from families who are desperate for intervention, but they can't get it through the NHS. Right. And is that another kind of problem that the NHS has found itself in because of COVID? Because they've everything is kind of ground to a halt inside the NHS. We've been talking about the NHS and some of the coverage that people are expecting to get for probably about three or four weeks now. And it seems to me that many large portions of the NHS are just not working very well. I think that's true. The demand is up, but certainly during the pandemic, uh, CAM services operated in a different way. Maybe they, in my view, they, they were less accessible. So many, many services went online. Um, lots of children can't actually access stuff online, either because it's difficult for them to find places to, that's private enough in, within their family home to engage in therapy or because they don't want to, which is fair enough. Some children would like to actually, and young people would like to see somebody face to face. So I think it was very difficult for children to access this information. Also, the other thing to bear in mind is that most referrals come through schools, yeah. or many people, GPs or schools. So so referrals, you know, people couldn't see their GPs. And also children often weren't in schools, were they, over the last two years? Well, I think that was a terrible uh, thing for an awful lot of children. And it's very much uh, something that we haven't really seen the full effect of. And we hear for the, for, for the moment, anyway, that the COVID inquiry, uh, when it does come around, is not even going to refer to how children were affected by it, which seems mad to me, doesn't it? It's extraordinary. Um, yes, I, I, I wrote to Paris this week about that because I'm, I'm so shocked that in the part two section of those draft terms, which were totally inadequate, the lessons to be learned section, nothing, nothing at all mentioned about children. Right. And some of that information, I've, those statistics I've just given you and your listeners, it, it seems utterly extraordinary. Just in my field alone, you know, I'm talking about mental health. Children have been terribly affected in terms of their physical health. We've seen rising obesity levels amongst children. We've seen terrible dental issues for children who are not accessing dental care. We've seen terrible safeguarding failures, as we know, for the you know, awful stories about children even dying or, or experiencing really significant harm. So um, the fact that children have not been prioritised at all um, in, in this inquiry is, is kind of the final insult, given that they've been ignored, in my view, yeah. over the course of the pandemic. And if you're seeing signs that more children are self-harming and more children are... Uh, depressed. I mean, presumably that is a big warning sign that they could also be suicidal. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and the, the other issue to remember about seeing these increase in, in figures, I think it's really important for your, your listeners to understand, is that um, over half of lifelong mental health disorders start by mid-adolescence. And certainly but three quarters are, have, have started by mid-twenties. So we're talking about a really important time in children's development in terms of their emotional well-being and so if we've actually subjected children which i believe we have as a society to an, an assault in terms of the the that their well-being we, we've, we've deprived them of the things which they require for their cognitive and, and emotional and um uh, uh, uh emotional well-being and their social well-being and development and when we're now uh, seeing the results you know children's brains are malleable and they're very very sensitive to environmental stresses which is why we're seeing those um those figures about uh when mental health conditions start in, in mid-adolescence and the impact they can have lifelong so um the fact that we have done this to our children i don't think we even we even have started to see um the the long-term impacts of, of, mm. of what's happened no quite and are you seeing any particular patterns with regard to age you know are the children being referred younger than they were before or is it mostly teenagers what's going on well, personally, I'm seeing lots of um, uh, teenagers. 
Um, I've seen lots of teenagers have experienced a, a lot of stress during the pandemic within within family homes too. You know, families were under pressure, and I think something that people often don't realise if they don't work with children is that we one of the ways we work differently if we're child specialists is we consider children as a system. They don't come on their own as as you know a patient that turns up. They come within a family, and families have been under enormous stress. You you just before um, I came on, you gave a. A, a, a little bit of the background as to some of the collateral harms that have been going on. I mean, children are coming from those families. They're coming from those families where families were experiencing financial stresses. Um, they were struggling themselves with isolation. And one of the other things you mentioned, which I think is really important and the inquiry needs to look at, is the impact of fear messaging that was mm. the, the general oh, population was subjected to on everyone. And that's obviously affected children too and their mental health so i've seen yeah it's, it's teenagers too but but certainly i see reports of, of younger children coming through yes. um, through, through services and emergency services with self-harm you know, eight and nine that sort of yeah thing. and presumably like all of these things if people are being referred in bigger numbers there'll be others who are not being referred who may still be suffering you know some mental problems without necessarily being serious enough at the moment to be referred anywhere yes and if you think there's that number of children requiring um, additional support. The schools are, you know, they're just coming back on their feet, aren't they? And as you were saying at the start of, of, of this uh, this hour, the, the schools have already, you know, they've still got things in place like masking many places or they're trying to manage infection mm. control in various ways. There's also, they're trying to manage um, staffing issues too, aren't they? So so the I don't think the full um, uh, focus is yet on the children that are coming through. I mean, another thing that's another issue that's really, really important in terms of schools is the number of children who are out of school still. Yeah. And I'm sure that you're aware of that, that we're talking about something like 100,000 children of the most vulnerable of our children who have been lost to the education system over the course of the pandemic. Right. And those are children who we won't know about their mental health issues at all because no one's got an eye on them. And that we're talking about a lifelong um, uh, difficulties for those children in terms of their emotional well-being, in terms of their vulnerability. Those children are going to be being exposed to sexual exploitation, criminal exploitation, um, you know, loss of education, all of this stuff. And, and, and we don't know what's going on for them. And that, that's, that's an absolute catastrophe. And, and, and it's um, it's completely unforgivable. Yes. So what needs to be done, um, Dr. Zenobia? Does it need more people, basically, more psychologists? What does it need? The system, yes, I think that there needs to be um, more, de- definitely more, more um, staffing within within CAM services uh, to support. Uh, I see, I see CAMs are being criticised for not accepting young people's services. They just can't take the numbers they're getting. I think schools too. There's a lot that's put on schools, but I think that if there were um, therapists, if there were um, mental health workers in schools that, that a lot of the young people who maybe don't require a, a really highly specialist service but could do with some intervention that may prevent them from them subsequently developing more serious difficulties those sorts of things would be would be really really helpful yeah thank you very much indeed dr zenobia store a child and adolescent senior clinical psychologist with the news that not surprisingly there's many many more children being referred to mental health services now than ever before. They're at breaking point, not surprisingly as well, because of what went on before, because of the lockdowns, because uh, of the pandemic restrictions, because of the way that they were kept out of school, because of the way that they were told to go back to school wearing masks, because of the way they were frightened, basically. Back on the subject of the NHS, I've got this uh, from Delilah. Listening to your reporting on the NHS, last Thursday I was awake all night with raging toothache. I phoned the dentist first thing Friday to ask to see a dentist, was told my dentist is on maternity leave until June. Asked if I could see another dentist, the receptionist said someone would ring me back. 
It's now Tuesday and I'm still waiting. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, five days. Treating my toothache with ibuprofen and salt baths. It's ridiculous. It really is. For God's sake. I mean, does anybody who's in the NHS know what's wrong with it and why it doesn't work? It's bonkers. Sam, on the on the subject of petrol, says from the height of oil prices for heating at around £1.40 uh, per litre, it was down to 86 pence per litre at weekend struggling to understand the static petrol and diesel prices at the pump well that's a very good question and one from uh, duck who says what gender are daleks do we now have cyber people at least the usa has transformers very good this is talk radio when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.